This podcast is sponsored by Kingsdown Meadow, located in beautiful Kent countryside. New homes available. Search Serenity Parks. Kent Online News. News you can trust. This is the Kent Online Podcast. Nicola Everett. Hi, thanks ever so much for downloading today's podcast. It's Wednesday, April the 7th. Plenty coming up on today's episode, including why there are calls for CCTV to be reinstalled at a park in Medway, a new ferry service coming to Kent and a look ahead to the start of the cricket season for Kent's women. But first, I'm joined on the podcast by reporter Oliver Kemp, who's been looking into the cases of long-term missing people from Kent. Now, data from police shows that there are more than 30 people from the county who've been missing for more than 20 years and the cases remain open. Well, Ollie, you've been meeting relatives of some of those who are left with just so many unanswered questions, haven't you? Yeah, and I think the, the, the big thing when you speak to these people, the thing that comes through and rings, rings so true is, is the fact that, you know, that grief is just never ending because there's no closure. And that's the most difficult thing, you know, when you're told by um, by Kent police or whoever that that no longer active leads are being pursued and we'll wait to see if anything comes up. That's a really hard thing because they're just a number of the people I've spoken to and the families I've spoken to are saying we're just still sitting here every day looking for answers. And, it, and it's not that it's in their heads every minute of every day, but there will be things that remind them of that person that's been missing. And, you know, that must be such a hard thing to, to live with for such a, a long amount of time. And, you know, we're talking about people who've missing their loved ones for more than 20 years. I mean, that's a hard thing for, I think, any of us to, to really grasp if we haven't been through it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's hear from some of those families then. You were saying about things that kind of just trigger those memories, and that was mentioned by a man called Phil Curtin. Now, I remember speaking to him at the time his daughter Louise went missing. Now, she disappeared um, from Germany, didn't she, in 2001. Tell us a bit about her story. Yeah, so she uh, actually went to Germany, so a place in, called Aachen in Germany, to go and spend time with her fiance and his family. Um, and uh, apparently, she there'd been a there'd been a, a a moment that had happened where she'd been she was studying to be a nurse in in, in Thanet, and she was told by one of her um, lecturers that she she wouldn't make the course, and and she got quite upset about that, and decided she just needed to go go somewhere else for a bit so it was a bit of you know letting off some steam taking some time away she was supposed to then get on a on a train to go to Ostend to get a get a uh, boat back to Dover and that's when she went missing and and, you know what transpired was a a long difficult months and years of, of going back and forth with German police speaking with Kent police and he talked a lot about how tough it was because you have different systems for dealing with people who are missing. Yeah, Phil does speak about um, missed opportunities in the search for his daughter. Let's hear a bit from Phil Curtin. There are several gravel pits in the village, around the village, just the sort of place where somebody could fall in or be thrown in. Um, And it was, again, it was more than a year before the German police decided to examine those. They got a whole load of special constables in scores of them and went sort of crawling over all the land but by then it was far too late to, I mean I've worked in the cement industry I know what pits are like like undergrowth grows and takes over things and the um, working areas of the quarry, quarry move around you you need to get in there within a week to try and spot something so again that was a missed opportunity I probably most days something would catch my eyes uh, somewhere and I'd think oh Louise would have liked that and uh, and then you'd have to 
you think, oh, you stupid girl, you know, what do you go, go and get lost for? And this is what happens with missing people. They they go missing uh, because they've, they're upset or they've had a row with their family. And then time goes on and they realise that the first thing that happened when they get home is, why do you do that to us? <laughs> and so they stay away all the longer. Uh, so you, that's, you know, you, I find myself thinking, what would I say if she suddenly turned up or phoned me? My wife died ten years ago now, without ever knowing. It's, uh, but as I say, it's uh, a thought that comes to you, and you don't don't get any. It doesn't help to dwell on it. You've got, got a life to get on with. I never heard of the word closure before we got involved in this, but finding out that she was dead and uh, knowing where her body was would be closure. At the moment you can relive all the stages of grieving over and over again. Now another case that, that's almost as long as that of missing uh, Louise Curtin is that of Rebecca Carr. Now she was last seen being dropped off at Gillingham train station. Tell us who you've been speaking to about her. Yeah I've been speaking uh, with Laura Simmons who's Rebecca's sister, Rebecca's younger sister. Um, so, so Laura was only 14 when Rebecca went missing. So she has, you know, spent more time with her sister missing than she did spend with her sister, um, which must be a difficult situation. And Laura spoke a lot about the fact that she felt like she became the emotional rock for her family because, uh, you know, her, her mum, Lynn, was obviously devastated at this happening as, as the lead started to dry up and there didn't seem to be any answers as to where Rebecca had gone. Um, you know, I think yeah, her mum Lynn took it took it really hard, and and although although Laura was very upset about the situation and, and had to grieve for it, she felt she needed to be strong for her mum. One of the other really difficult things about this was that, was that Rebecca left behind Tyler, who at the, the time was three years old, so her son. Um, so Tyler became a much bigger part of of, of the family, and, and Laura said she took on very much a maternal role. One thing Laura found particularly poignant was when Tyler, who's now in his 20s, spoke at his uh, nan's funeral last year. My nan and Becky had a really strong relationship as well. And Tyler, obviously, it was his, it's his grandma, you know, or his grandma. And he stood up and gave, he delivered the most heart-wrenching speech, bless him, last year at a funeral. And I, I just remember sitting there like a proud mum. <laughs> And it sounds really strange, but he—he he is his mum to a T. Like he's—he's he's so much like her, and I see that now. It's—it's it's scary. I suppose you find yourself sitting there thinking, she would be so proud. Like she would be absolutely made up at what you've just done. And and I—I f- I feel as though she's not getting to see that. Do you see what I mean? It's, it's horrible, but it is really hard to explain. But I just—I feel like, you know, we we try and keep close with him, not as close as. I would like to be and that you know it's sad to say but circumstances if Becky had still been with us then absolutely he'd probably be you know he'd probably live in my house he'd probably be be with us every day so we're close but you know not as close as we would have been had she still have been here and that that's you know, a hard contributing factor, really. Um, now onto a case that's actually been ongoing since 1994 and You've been chatting to Jason. Now, his granddad, uh, a man called Herbert Connolly, 
actually went missing from a care home, didn't he? Now, again, like Laura, Jason was quite young at the time, but he vividly remembers what happened. Yeah, and he said that that isn't because he's been told about the events. It is one of those moments that will forever be sort of indelible in his mind because of how, how intense that situation must have been. Um, so they got a phone call uh, one, one evening to, from the care home to say that, you know, had they picked Herbert up, uh, had they taken him out without anyone being notified at the, at the care home, obviously they said no. Um, and they said, well, you know, you're, you're, uh, well, Herbert is missing. He's not currently in the care home. Uh, he was already quite deep in the stages of Alzheimer's. Um, and so it had happened before that he'd gone missing. There was um, there were a couple of instances where he'd been found uh, wandering up around Cookhamwood Prison in Borstal. Um, and there was another moment as well where he had to be taken to hospital for hypothermia because he'd been out wandering around in the cold. So it's, it had been something that the family had had to deal with before, but it quickly became apparent that actually this was different. Um, and, you know, after 26 years, not a single lead has been, has been discovered as to where he went that night. Not, not a single bit of evidence at all. And Jason's auntie actually went to quite extreme lengths, didn't she, to try and find out what might have happened to Herbert? Yes, uh, she decided to, to visit a medium, which I've been told by, uh, by a number of people um, and also by the charity Missing People that this is quite a common thing. Um, because families want closure, those that might not even believe that, that going to see a medium, or they might not believe in, in the ideas of spiritualism or anything like that, but they think, well, if this is going to give us some sort of answer, then at the very least, hopefully that will give us some closure. So um, that's something that Jason spoke to me about in detail. It's comfort to some people and hope. And like, if you show photos, you take pieces of clothing. Like they saw a picture of my nan and granddad and the woman said they could see a light over my nan, but obviously there was no light over my granddad and he'd passed away. But um, it's not for everyone. A lot of people don't believe in that sort of thing, but I would say it may be a comfort to, to families out there or people out there if their loved ones are missing. Um, but there's no guarantee and obviously the leads that this lady gave my auntie um, come to nothing and it was just a dead end again and it was a little bit of hope but then taken away again so it's it's a difficult a difficult one you've mentioned there a couple of times closure i think that's the theme i got from all of the people that you spoke to really is that they just need to know for you know to put their minds at rest i think quite a few of them have kind of accepted it's not going to be good news after all this time but they just need that closure now you've been chatting to Paul Joseph he works at Missing People and, and they obviously support the families don't they can you tell us a bit about what he's been telling you about the things they do yeah and the big thing for Missing People is is offering support for those families all the way through a process and obviously if a process is someone's been missing for two decades or longer that that support is still there for them um, you know a lot of people, you know, Paul spoke to me about the fact that a lot of people will be okay for a number of years um, once their family member has been missing, but something might happen in their lives, which, which brings up all of these really difficult memories again. And it might just be that they need somebody to have a conversation with. Obviously the people that work on the helplines at Missing People are used to having conversations with those that have loved ones who are missing. So that can just be a rock for, for that family member, someone to be able to talk to, especially if, you know, because losing uh, or a loved one going missing is such a difficult experience for all of the family members, one person who's struggling might not want to speak to another family member because it brings up difficult memories for them as well. So having that external bit of support, he said, would, would be something that 
um, that can offer a little bit of comfort to families. We're used to, unfortunately, all in our lives, various things about grief, bereavement, different things, but actually knowing knowing someone in your life that's maybe been through the experience of having someone go missing is very rare. And it's, it's constantly dealing with that unknown, um, having to maybe keep hope whilst you're balancing that with thinking of worst case scenarios, what might have happened to someone, thinking something bad might have happened to someone that you love, but you don't know where they are and you don't have that answer. So sort of helping, supporting people and just kind of holding them through that ambiguity, really, of not knowing what's there. So we and we offer that support um, to families from, you know, the first hours of someone have gone, has gone missing, which could be lots of questions about what do I do? How do I contact the police? What should I do? Maybe people are very panicking through to people who've had family members missing for weeks, months, years. Um, you know, it might be that somebody's had someone missing for several years and then they, they have a nightmare about them and they wake up and it's it's the early morning and there's no one to talk to and they don't feel like they, they don't want to worry other family members, but they know they can contact us and speak to someone who's not going to judge them, is just going to be able to talk. And I think also you know we it's very hard for us to in life it can be quite awkward talking about things and people quite often don't know how to talk about someone who's missing to the person who's missing them so you know what what we try to do is talk to the family member and have the missing person present in the conversation use their name talk about them in the present tense talk talk about them as who they are and kind of not um uh not not avoid that and allow, allow that person to kind of still talk about their loved one and kind of you know their concerns for them their fears what they're hoping and all that kind of stuff i think one of the one of the most surprising um things that that paul told me was that a lot of families that contact missing people think that there is a 24-hour rule so you can't contact the police until your loved one's been missing for 24 hours um, that is categorically not true. He says that actually comes from uh, maybe policies in other countries like America or even crime films that come out of Hollywood where people think, well, I have to wait 24 hours. And in fact, he said, you know, if you think that your loved one is at high risk and, and you think they are missing, it's important that you get in touch with the police the second you can, because those first few hours of a person going missing are often the most vital in a case and, and could lead to them being able to find them. Ollie, it's um, a really fascinating read. So if you do want to read more details about Louise Curtin, Rebecca Carr and Herbert Connolly, and we've got information there on missing people and how to get in touch with them, do head to read Ollie's special report, Vanished Without a Trace, at kentonline.co.uk. The Kent Online Podcast with Serenity Parks. Some of our other top stories now and a man's been taken to hospital after being stabbed at a housing estate in Dartford. The man in his 20s suffered injuries to his arm during the attack in Temple Hill yesterday evening. We're told his injuries are not thought to be life-threatening. Meantime, police are investigating an attack on an eight-year-old boy by a group of older children in Dover. He suffered an injury to his hand in the Beaufoy Road area on Easter Monday. There had been reports on social media that the boy was stabbed but 
officers say he wasn't taken to hospital. Pet owners in part of Kent are being urged to stay vigilant after a dog was injured by meat allegedly spiked with poison and nails. Police were called to McAlpine Crescent in Lewes after the dog became unwell after eating it in an alleyway. He was treated by a vet. Data seen by the Kent Online podcast shows nearly 30 senior members of staff at Kent County Council are on six-figure salaries. 29 people were earning more than £100,000 in the last financial year, according to an annual survey by the Taxpayers Alliance. Their research shows Kent is the eighth highest-paying local authority in the UK. There are calls today for CCTV to be reinstalled in a park in Medway, following concerns about antisocial behaviour. Cameras used to be in place at Rain and Rec near to the town's train station, but were taken down. Residents fear that's led to a rise in drug-taking and vandalism in the area. Stuart Bourne is from Friends of Rain and Rec, who've started the petition. We've noticed what's just more worrying, uh, an increase in sort of older people doing some criminal behaviour. So we've noticed some drug-taking and drug-dealing happening, both in the park and in the car park next door. So um, that's why when we um, heard about the campaign set up by the local vicar, uh, Nathan Ward, to put a CTV back into the park, we properly supported it because um, we've spoken to a lot of our members and the feedback we get is that they see that CTV would be an ideal way to um, discourage a lot of these uh, people acting like they are in a park, in a park that's quite um, a really special park and it's at the heart of the community as well. We're not quite sure why it was taken away and it seems odd considering that, um, that there's still CV cameras at Rain and Precinct and in the car park behind the Cricketers pub, yet not in a car park that's quite close to a mainline train station into London, which is probably, uh, through county lines, criminal behaviour. is an ideal spot to do um, quite dangerous criminal drug de- uh, dealing as well. Kent Online reports. A ferry company is launching a new freight service between Sheerness and Calais. DFDS will start running a daily sailing from Sheppey to France in June with the ship able to carry up to 165 unaccompanied trailers or containers. The company says the new route will create as many as 100 local jobs. Four Kent schools have been shortlisted in this year's Times Educational Supplement Independent School Awards. Sevenoaks School, Dulwich Prep in Cranbrook, Ashford School and St Ronan's in Hawkehurst are all out for prizes. The winners will be announced at the end of the month. An historic War 14 Kent has gone on for sale for a cool quarter of a million pounds. The Grade 2 listed Martello Tower number 25 in Dimchurch is currently in a state of disrepair but it comes with planning permission to turn it into a holiday home. And a new game show that was filmed at Maidstone Studios is going to air for the first time this weekend. Game of Talents which is hosted by Vernon Kay will see contestants pair up with celebrities to win money. The first episode is on ITV on Saturday. Kent Online Sport. Kent race walker Tom Bosworth says he's unbelievably proud to have been chosen to compete at the Tokyo Olympics. The 31-year-old from Seven Oaks has shared a picture of his selection letter on Twitter. He finished sixth in the 20k event in Rio back in 2016. Cricket and Kent's Tammy Beaumont says after so few games last year, she's excited to have a full calendar of fixtures about to get underway. The club captain has had a strong winter playing for England and was recently named top of the women's ODI batting rankings. She's been speaking ahead of the start of the season. We obviously hadn't played much longer format cricket over the last year or so, so um, to go quite well in the ODIs personally and, and then continue that in the T20s, I think I've come home kind of full of confidence and I've always known that I play, I prefer playing in English conditions, so I guess that's kind of what I had in, in New Zealand. So yeah, personally, really looking forward to the summer, um, feeling really good going into it, having had a, a good winter and 
yeah, hopefully that carries across to the teams I get to play with. I had a quick look at my calendar and I realised like from end of April, like I've got cricket like all the way through to September, maybe even longer. And uh, just so much excitement, I think, um, you know, last year was, you know, probably played about 10 games in total. And that's the first time I've ever played that little cricket in a long time. And at first, the break was quite nice in kind of May and June and getting to go and do a few normal things on a weekend in the summer you know, like nice country walks and stuff, but it quite quickly wore off. Um, and I'm just desperate to get out there and play as much cricket as possible this year. And yeah, I think that kind of excitement of early seasons really come back, even though obviously I was lucky enough to, to go away this winter. And, and there's like a real excitement, I think, in women's cricket in particular. There's just so much new stuff going on. Kent get their T20 campaign underway against Surrey later this month. Tomorrow, the men start their season with a county championship game at Northamptonshire with play due to start at 11. And in football, Gillingham's women will now play Cheltenham Town in the third round of the FA Cup. The Jills were due to take on Portsmouth, but they've been kicked out of the competition for fielding an ineligible player. Cheltenham ladies have been reinstated after losing to Portsmouth in round two. They'll host Gillingham on Sunday. That's all for today. Thanks ever so much for listening. Don't forget you can subscribe to the IM News app. That will give you access to all KM Group newspapers. Just head to subsaver.co.uk. News you can trust. This is the Kent Online Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Kingsdown Meadow, located in beautiful Kent countryside. New homes available. Search Serenity Parks.